Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to episode 23 of Top of Mind with Contilio Wealth. On today's episode, we are highlighting the new Washington State capital gains tax. It might be new to you because you might have filed that return for the first time this year. We thought we would elaborate on it, uh, speak to what it is, speak to how to, I don't want to say avoid it, but just ways of uh, deducting yourself around it. Uh, we also wanted to highlight that Microsoft recently converted over to a unlimited vacation policy and paid out all their uh, current vacation benefits. Kind of interesting. Thought we would talk back and forth on that with the studies. And lastly, big tech earnings were released this past week. So what a blowout. We thought we would talk through that and just highlight some of the things that we thought were interesting uh, and some of the rhetoric that we heard on those earnings calls. It is 5-5. It is Cinco de Mayo, 9.40 in the morning here on a beautiful Friday morning coming to you live and in color. And I'm joined as always by Hal, Mr. Hao Dang. And um, how you want to touch on, there was some news t- uh, just the other day about the Fed increase as well. So why don't I turn it over to you to just give us an update on what did the Fed do, what's their outlook, and what do we think about it? Yeah, the, the Fed raised rates by a quarter of a percent, so that's 0.25%. And the market pushed down rates. So I think Chris is on high themes. Is you raise rates on the Fed side, everyone else lowers rates on every other side. I think I predicted uh, what, that, right? Can yeah. I go, can I get the win on that? I think so. I think okay. uh thanks. Uh we need to differentiate 2 days and beyond in terms of maturity. So when you're a bond holder, you're essentially loaning out money, right? Most likely to the US government, and the longer you loan out money, the less yield you're getting, which is so wild. Um the 10-year right now is 3.46% and we started the year at 4. Hmm. So imagine locking in four percent on a 10-year and now you're seeing three and a half feels pretty good especially as inflation keeps coming down yeah right you're still losing money at the time but if you think about a 10-year period yeah probably well well in the black on that and how this divergence this is called the inverted yield curve how it impacts you is if you have money in a money market you're getting four and a half percent right and that's much better than three and a half percent and you're not committing 10 years However, yeah. that is a very short-term rate, Big which caveat. can move. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're attracted to that, you're not locking in a 10-year rate at all with the money market. That's going to probably come down if, if and when we get a recession mm-hmm. because rates won't stay around 4.5%. So think about what you're locking in, even if it's to today's detriment, because those money markets have to keep reinvesting because those are seven-day bonds. And after every seven days, they have to keep finding new bonds to re- replenish that fund. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is and why think, that rate has gone up so quickly. Yeah. Because if you look at a 10-year bond fund, it's not paying exactly what a brand new 10-year bond is paying today because it trails, right? The, the yep. bonds that still have a year left 
that were bought nine years ago have to mature and then those bonds are reinvested. So that, that yield will pull upward towards the current yield uh, in a bond fund that is, but in a very short-term bond fund, it will move literally daily as yeah. things expire and are reinvested. What we're describing is reinvestment risk. You want higher rates if you have money coming due or maturing sooner. Yeah. Versus lower rates, right? And, you know, I hate to break it to everyone who loves higher rates. They're not going to last. It just doesn't. That's just not how business cycles work. So I opened up a high yield savings account the other week. And I actually posted this on LinkedIn. Um, I made more in interest in one week than <laughs> yeah. I did in, in the entire year in having my banking. I, I bank at a big bank. I bank at Chase. I had a, I'm a, I'm a WAMU person, you know, I, I went from WAMU to Chase and, and they've always done right by me. I know that people love and hate their big banks, but I never had an issue. So, uh, anyway, Chase paid me, you know, practically nothing on my cash there. And I made frankly, just a small initial deposit into a, a high yield account. And, um, yeah, I earned more interest in a week than I did all year. Yeah. And it's the big banks who are getting the money though. It's weird. Yeah. It's, uh, Regional banks that are paying, generally paying more, um, can attract these big dollars because FDIC insurance limits are at two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, and we mentioned time and time again since Silicon Valley that if you're a business, you can't afford to miss payroll. Yeah, totally. So I want to elaborate a little bit because we've had a lot of clients reach out to us recently on high yield options or higher yielding options because many of them are struggling with I've got X dollars of cash in the bank, I'm not earning anything what should I do? And we kind of go through, you know, you can do a high yield savings account. You can buy a short term bond fund. You can just leave it in your money market or move it to your money market in say your Fidelity account or your Schwab account or, you know, wherever, wherever money is. Um, and I think what I want to address here is we've actually been in talking through this, we've been recommending that people move money into say their retail Fidelity account sitting next to their Microsoft stock and just leaving it in the money market fund or buying like a short-term bond fund, because those are yielding right now four and a half to almost 5%. And so I wanna address why in the world would I open up a high yield savings account that uh, I went with Marcus. So I did the one through Goldman Sachs because Goldman Sachs makes me feel fancy. So I thought I wanted to do that. Um, I looked between that one and between the one at Amex and the Goldman Sachs one was yielding a little bit more. So I did it. Uh, I'm getting 3.9%, I believe on it. Why in the world would I do that? Why would I open up a new bank account, which is more paperwork, which is another statement and another tax form to earn 3.9 when what I'm telling clients to do is earning four and a half to five? Um, well, the short answer is I just wanted the money to be separate. And I, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is not every decision needs to make complete Excel mathematical financial sense. It's like when we talk to clients about paying off their house or not. Anybody's Excel model almost always points to don't do it. But that doesn't check the emotional box of like, yeah, but it, I just, I want to do it. It makes me feel good. And as long as from a financial planning standpoint, it works, let's, let's do it. So uh, I guess I'm just giving everybody my own personal disclaimer there on why did I forcefully choose the lower interest rate versus the higher interest rate? I just simply wanted the money separate. And I figured the difference of 1% wasn't that much in the grand scheme well, of things. Again, I got to challenge that because we, we tend to, when we run into clients that have dozens and dozens of accounts through different financial institutions is like that's hard to track we've always recommended to consolidate at least some of it yeah but again that's the the excel sheet answer there so what you're saying is 
this helps you sleep a little bit better. If, if not just incrementally better, it's something, right? I just wanted the money held outside of my normal investments. And, and again, you could say, just open up another account like that. Then it's outside of your investments. Yeah, but yeah. either way, I open up a new account. So either way, there's a new tax form. And, and, and why did I want that, by the way? Because this is just cash, right? So I anticipate the money going in, coming out, coming, you know, going in, coming out. I'm kind of one of those people that when I put money in my investments, I don't really take it out. I know we have a lot of clients like that too. Like it's painful for them to have to sell and take X dollars out for whatever reason. Yeah. I'm that person. Yeah. Um, and so I just wanted it in a separate account. I, uh, I'm certainly open to people's feedback if they want to email me and say, um, Hey, eat your cooking. You told me to buy the high yield thing. And <laughs> you're doing the slightly lower, higher, higher, high yield thing. Um, you're right. It doesn't make financial sense, but like I said, not all this stuff has to make perfect, perfect financial sense. Yeah. Well, uh, going back to the FOMC, sorry to yeah. revert totally back, but, um, <clears throat> I think the biggest thing was the 25 basis points or the 0.25% hike was fully expected. It was fully priced in and the market yawned basically. <laughs> uh, it gave a collective yawn. We knew that was coming. The big thing that way they were looking at, or at least that's what's been reported was the hinting of further rate hikes was suddenly wiped off the statement, meaning, mm. or suggesting that they're done. Uh, I think a lot of forecasts to start the year, I've already predicted uh, an early summer, late spring type of uh, wrap-up. So we're on target. Uh, I think the market is collectively pretty smart in, in trying to forecast these things. Sometimes they're not going to get everything right. right we, we mean, you just had a debate about Apple earnings. And again, yeah, we did. we'll probably save that for another episode. But w when we think a company should be priced at X amount, the market has different opinions sometimes, right? And that they sometimes that doubting the market is you're doubting lots and lots of other traders that have access to a lot more information than we do. And so hold on, did the Fed yeah. say we're done after this 25, you know, 0.25 hike? Or Fed, did they, what did they, what would they, what did they say? The Fed uh, removed uh, additional firming policy may be appropriate. That term there, I use so additional mm. firming prop firming may be appropriate was removed. Oh, yeah. So because last time they said we're going to go one more time and then we are done. They didn't exactly. Say it. Yeah. They, they said implying. we're done after that and they they did it. But this time I was expecting them to come out and sort of just reiterate that and say yeah. we are doing what we said was in the plan and we are done until further notice. But yeah. you're telling me that they didn't really say that. No, they, well, that actually, so additional policy firming may be appropriate. It just kind of leaves the door open yeah, for sure. more hikes. They've removed that. They remo so they're, they're essentially closing the door, so to speak on mm -hmm. the optionality of raising rates more. Cause obviously the biggest concern has been, the number of regional bank failures. We've talked about it since, actually since before SIVB, um, Silicon Valley Bank, coincidentally, because we were just talking about the money system, right? Yeah. But it's seemingly gotten worse. It's spreading. It's spreading to banks that have specific client, client base so far or uh, specific client loans, right? So, yep. so we'll talk about that in a future episode, but we want to... Test this new format, keeping everything tight and concise, hopefully. 
my recommendation no it's not a recommendation i wish <laughs> i wish that we could just freeze trading and freeze news on all small banks for the next 30 days and just let this this situation chill out um for those following the news just so that we're we're up to date and talking about it briefly here first republic bank was seized by the fdic last weekend the fdic brokered a dealer over the weekend to sell to jp morgan fine done whatever it's a shame because that didn't have to happen um but it did it so did. um hopefully it just hopefully we can report at say the end of the year and we can say remember all that crazy stuff and look we made it through that's our hope well we always say that right so hopefully it's uh, one yeah, more time i guess that's true all right let's shift gears washington state capital gains tax what is it why is it here who has to pay it how do you deduct away from it so uh, Washington State in 2022 enacted a new long-term capital gains tax. The tax is 7% on all long-term capital gains over $250,000. Example, let's say that you sell Amazon stock and in that sale you generate $300,000 of capital gains. Not $300,000 of money or proceeds, but $300,000 of long-term capital gains. The first 250 of that, you would pay tax at the federal level, of course, but you wouldn't pay the state tax. The next 50, so the 250 exemptions, so the 50 there between 250 and 300, you would, of course, still pay the federal tax, and you would also pay 7% back to the great state of Washington. Um, this was highly debated. This was in the news. This was in the courts. And the Su Supreme Court ultimately ruled that this is constitutional in the state of Washington, and it moved forward. I bring this up because it caught a lot of people by surprise earlier this year because the tax actually started January 1st of 2022, but it wasn't fully finalized until recently when the Supreme Court finally made their decision saying like, nope, this tax is a real thing. We are, we are moving forward with it. Um, ways to get out of it. Well, <clears throat> stay below 250,000 of long-term capital gains. You might think that that's easy, but it also might not be that easy. We have a lot of clients that have concentrated stock positions and those stock positions sometimes do very well and sometimes don't do very well. Um, we need to be even more honed in on what lots you are selling. Um, what's key about this is you cannot take short-term capital losses and use those to offset long-term capital gains at the state level. Let me back up a little bit. When you file your federal tax return, you have capital gains. A short-term capital gain is anything that you sold that you held for less than a year, a stock, for example. Long-term capital gains is anything that you sold that you held for more than a year. At the federal level, you can take long-term losses to offset long-term gains. You can take short-term losses to offset long-term gains. And then you can actually take net against net. So if you had a huge short-term loss, you could offset a huge short-term gain and pay no federal capital gains tax if they were equal. At the state level, it's really important to understand they only look at long-term capital gains. So if you have $300,000 of long-term capital gains and $150,000 of short-term capital losses, you're still paying the state tax above 250 those long-term capital gains. So I just want to make that key point because that is the uh, key piece here. 
couple of other notes and then we'll move on. Some things are exempt from this. Actually, a lot of things are exempt from this. Real estate's exempt for this. So that's good. In Washington state, we actually have quite high excise tax to sell a house. So on top of real estate commissions, you've got to pay a, a decently hefty excise tax to sell your house. It's graded. If you're curious on that, just Google excise tax on my house sale, something along those lines, and it'll tell you. Um, and you still, of course, get that two hundred fifty dollars or $500,000 exemption on your primary residence when you sell it. So um, real estate gains are not taxed in Washington state. Other things like livestock and farmland and things like that are also exempt. So if anybody out there owns livestock or farmland, those are exempt also in Washington state. That's really about it. It's just something that we need to be planning around and something that you all need to be aware of when you are selling concentrated stock positions. Um, the best time to plan around this is like at the end of the year. Let's say you wanted to un unload a bunch of stock, sell some in December, sell some in January, stretch it out over two tax years so that you are more or less avoiding the tax. We'll keep everybody up to date on this. Uh, it is rumored that now that the tax is in force, it's going to totally change. The exemption amount goes down and the tax goes up and this and the other. We'll see. Remains to be seen. I hope that's helpful. If there's any questions, uh, shoot us a note at team at conciliawealth.com and we will either address them there or address them live uh, if we totally or if I totally confused everybody with my description there. Well, it's confusingly written because it doesn't seem sensible to not offset certain types of gains with certain type of losses, which in our world, we're, we're pretty used to doing at least the federal end. Yeah. Um, that's what makes it confusing. But again, your tax situation is going to be different from the next person. So uh, consult your, your tax person and talk to us. What's interesting about this, how is that most states, like the great state of California, they tax all capital gains. So yep. if it's long-term or short-term, they tax yeah. all of that at the state income level, which is for most income levels higher than the 7% rate at Washington. So you could take long-term uh, losses against long-term and short against short and net it against net, and then just the net amount would be ultimately taxed in, in California. Washington just looks at long-term capital gains, which is actually unique um, because they don't, they don't tax other income or other short-term capital gains. Um, so it is a little bit more favorable in that sense, but... Um, anyway, it's just most states look at all capital gains as yeah. income. Rather it's just than easier just to strategize for. Yeah, right. Yeah. The, another point that comes to mind is that since the federal uh, capital gains tax is higher than the state capital gains tax in Washington, and for that matter, in any state, our philosophy around things like tax loss harvesting is still centered around Maximize the loss. Yeah. So we will book short-term capital gains instead of long-term capital gains or instead of waiting for long-term capital gains because we can offset the federal level, which is a bigger tax. Um, some of this we do manually. Actually, a lot of this we do manually. But some of this, if, if we're in other strategies, then it's automatically done for our clients. Um, at which point, again, the, the systems are just programmed to say max loss is the key. I think COVID is a great example of this. If you didn't execute a tax loss um, on the exact right day, yeah. you missed yeah. it completely. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we were waiting, oh, we'll just wait 30 days for something to go long-term so we can take a long-term deduction, we would have missed a significant deduction depending on account size. Yep. Okay. Enough on that. Moving on. 
Over to the news, Microsoft pays out vacation on 415. They are moving to an unlimited vacation policy. I am actually surprised about this. Everything I've ever read about unlimited vacation is that it's terrible for employees. Unlimited vacation policies, usage tends to be lower than if you have vacation policies. Um, I'm surprised that a company like Microsoft, and, and, and that leads to then, you know, employees are less happy, they're taking less vacations, it, it leads to this sort of shaming on, yeah, I took two weeks off. Uh, how much time did you take off, Chris? You know, at least the shaming issues. I'm surprised that a company like Microsoft, which is so intentional in their research, uh, and therefore then their benefits that they bring to their employees would would do this. I don't know. How what are your thoughts? In a competitive environment, I don't obviously don't work at Microsoft. I would be well underqualified just for everyone's information. But I would think, yeah, what you mentioned, the in the environment we're in with everyone getting laid off in terms of the, specifically the big tech arena where they've overhired or seeing a slowdown in enterprise spend, that, in my mind, would say, hey, you got a limited vacation policy, but if you're perceived as taking too much relative to the next person who is just an absolute beast of a worker and takes one week a year, that's <clears throat> tough. That's really tough. Mm-hmm. And I totally would understand the plight of a high-performing Microsoft engineer not wanting to fall behind relative to their peers, in especially in this environment. I know... Again, a lot of a lot of people in the certain spaces there are untouchable because they are so good at their job and so irreplaceable. But I I think that creates people in an environment where people think twice about going on a extended vacation when they I probably should. Counterpoint: What if they switch to forced vacation policy? That would that be so much be better. better. We force you everyone's to, on the same. Yeah. We give you. <laughs> we hate it here. Three weeks. <laughs> we hate forced vacation. We give you uh, three weeks a year, four weeks yeah. a year, whatever the tenure is. You know, it scales, yeah. right? We force you to take at least one of those. Yes, and invariably. We know, we, sorry, just to finish. Our personal we, ex- go, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> from our personal experience, we we don't. We're we're in the same boat in terms of that mentality where we don't. Again, if my wife's listening, sorry, it's just we, we hate taking vacations as concilio employees because I don't know, it either the work from home policy or our just our mental aptitude wanting to push and push and push. Um we're invariably at the end of every year, that forced vacation says, Oh shoot, we got we got excess that we need to use. That's that's why we don't like it, but I ultimately I think it's good. It's needed. The the studies point to people need breaks, and they need breaks that are more than a long weekend. You know, after four days off, they start to actually unplug from work. Uh, I, this might have even have been a Microsoft study that I read, so that's why I'm so surprised about this. But I've just read so many studies on this, and uh, I guess for everybody's knowledge. Uh, we, we at Concilio, we have a vacation rollover policy, but we limit it. And so our objective is to incentivize people to go take a vacation. Um, in fact, if you don't take your vacation, you, you know, you'll lose those rollover hours. And, uh, we are also very intentional, uh, in, intentional about saying, Hey, you're going to lose these hours. 
go take a vacation. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. good, right? So, you know, again, we are, we are, you know, trying to help people disconnect so that they can come back and be more, more excited. Again, that's all the research that, that we've read on our side. I'm just shocked that Microsoft's doing this. Yeah, it just, well, from my point of view, it just doesn't feel like I'm working doing this, right? Doing what I do, I which I love. Um, someone at Microsoft might have different pressures because no one else is in my role, right? There's eight people in our company. There's no one else doing what I do. Um, Influencer? Ever. You're right. Yeah, You're yeah. the only one. Yeah, the, the, free, the T-shirt is free from sale because we don't have it for sale. So. <laughs> so, if anybody wants merch, email us. Yeah, we might we might be able to get you some. Maybe <laughs> this is a comfortable shirt. That's why I like wearing it. Uh, Say more about the comfort of that shirt. It just I'm feels kidding. really soft. And <laughs> <sticky>. <laughs> Where was it? In terms of Microsoft, though, in comparability, there there's probably in different um, departments too, engineers of your ilk and your your stature that if you happen to take four weeks in a year, which I think is pretty reasonable maybe too low, sure. but if you do and the next person takes two or three, what does that do going back to like the GE where they cut the bottom 10% of performers every year, right? Uh, when yeah. Jack Welsh did that. And, well, that's another conversation, but like you don't want to get fired in this environment. And I think, I think that's a poorly timed policy. All right, we got to move on. Let's move into big tech earnings. We're going to highlight a couple companies here. I'm just going to fly through this, and then we can we can chat about it for a couple of minutes. So, uh, Microsoft was the first to release. They beat on top and bottom lines. So they did have a continued slowdown in cloud revenue. Um, Azure grew by 27% year over year, uh, but that number has declined every quarter since the third quarter of 2022. They did say that large customers were pulling back on spending as higher interest rates challenge global growth. And that seems a pretty typical thing everybody's saying right now. Um, and that was part of the reason for the decline. But they jumped on earnings. They said the keywords in their earnings call, which is AI, a handful of times. And so their stock went up. Um, I don't want to discount it. They had an increase in revenue. They had an increase in profitability. They had a fantastic quarter. Uh, Google Google beat on top and bottom lines. They also authorized a massive $70 billion stock buyback. The key there is they authorized it. They didn't actually give any guidance around when or by how much. A lot of companies will say, we will do this much per year or $70 billion over 10 years or whatever. They just authorized it as a as a number. So it is worth saying, you know, these buybacks are, are in, in part what pulls stocks up, fewer shares, um, uh, makes those shares more valuable. <clears throat> uh, it also is a signal when you see these big stock buybacks that these companies are not in high, high growth mode anymore. Um, that's true for Google. That's true for Microsoft. It's true for Meta. It's true for Amazon. These companies are not growing at 25 or 50% a year. They might have a unit that is small growing by that fast. Um, stock buybacks, insane profitability, dividends. These are all uh, indications of slower growth companies. So make no mistake, big tech is is not as fast growing as it used to be. Uh, one key thing in Google's revenue here, or Google's earnings, is that YouTube beat revenue. They were proud of that. Their cloud unit turned a profit for the first time, uh, and the cloud revenue grew by 28%. Good example. Yeah, cloud grew by 28%, but Google has a top line. I don't have the number here. I think it was only like 3 or 4 or 5%. Not significant. Uh, Meta absolutely crushed earnings. Two things came out of that call. 
operation um, um, efficiency, the year of efficiency, I think is what, what the Zuck quoted it, is executing flawlessly. Um, definitely, there are more and more people impacted there that I've seen on LinkedIn recently posting. So that is difficult to see. But from a company standpoint, um, it does seem like the remaining people that are there are happy with some of the changes of the more flattening of the organization, which makes them faster, makes them more innovative. So, I, you know, I, I think it's a it's a decent sort of reinvention of Meta. Stock was up 11% on the news. And after I was trading, um, it's jumped a little bit since then. And they also, the big key thing there is their business is growing again. After a couple of quarters of declining usage, declining revenues, it actually jumped. So that was fantastic. Last one to round out is Amazon. Amazon also beat on all metrics. They beat on revenue, they beat on profits, they beat on margin, and they actually delivered pretty good guidance. Their stock jumped 10%, I think even as high as 14% in after hours trading. And then it fell back to a flat day and then it actually went negative. And the reason for that is they gave weak AWS guidance. And I think the market might have digested that as, uh, again, cloud spend was weak. That could be uh, sort of a business environment flag. And Microsoft happened to say a very similar story, you know, a few days prior. All right, I said a lot there. I want to turn it over to you, How? What do you make of all this and all the, the big tech earnings here that, that was released in the last week and a half? Yeah, a little bit of surprise with, with the reaction, just given all the fundamental economic news. Like, every, everyone's smart, right? Said. We're headed for a slowdown. Earnings have to come down. Um, Meta's up 94% year to date, and that's really through May 5th. And a 94% return in just the four months is absolutely ridiculous. It's ridiculous, yeah. It's insane. But they, they are a cash printing machine, apparently, according to their earnings. Like they they printing cash. Um, and their business the is growing again. Like, yeah. Bing, bing. Yeah. Imagine them not making those uh, those uh, meta mistakes, like changing their name to Meta or or some of the augmented reality, virtual reality. Which is a lot of the spend on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, I, they, there might be a future there, but imagine they were a little bit more um, focused. What kind of company they're they're going to be? And again, well, I, I I think what's amazing there, and, and and sorry to jump in. Yeah, yeah. I think previous to this earnings report, some people were saying, can big tech just um, lay off their way into better profits, right? If these businesses aren't growing as fast, can they just cut expenses and, yeah. and maintain or even increase profitability, which is sort of like a vanity metric in, in the accounting world, right? Meta proved that wrong because they were able to cut expenses, but they also grew their top line, uh, which was great. All these companies grew their top line, by the way, but it was great to see that Meta pulled out a fantastic quarter. Yeah, and nothing to sneeze at. Microsoft up 24%. Year to date, no, twenty seven percent, twenty eight percent year to date. Yeah, and Amazon up twenty four percent year to date. Again, this year is not even halfway through, and we're having these massive rebounds. And again, we mentioned, I think, the last episode how important it is to have exposure to a little bit of everything. These companies didn't do good last year, and look at them. Really here. bad. Yeah, I think Meta being the worst of them, and which is probably why they're up so much. Uh, I think Microsoft was the best of those in terms of the down year. They're still down 30, 35%, I believe. Um, but 
Amazon was down like 60%. Meta was down like 70 something percent. Yeah. I mean, crazy. What do you make about stock buybacks? So Google had this $70 billion stock buyback. I know that Microsoft does this all the time. Apple does this all the time. These are cash printing companies. But for a company like Google to do it, I think is maybe a little bit more interesting. What do you make of it? And, and, and as a sidebar, when we get there, can you explain what a stock buyback is for our listeners? Yeah, stock buyback is stock buyback. <laughs> You're buying back your, your outstanding shares. So outstanding shares is called the float, and that's how many shares are being traded. But you think about the the gifts, not the gifts, but the rewards, the stock rewards that the, the employees are getting. Mm-hmm. They're getting new stock, right? So that's mm-hmm. that's adding to the float, meaning if I have a million dollars in profit and I have a million shares mm-hmm. outstanding, that's a dollar mm-hmm. per share in profit, which actually represents a pretty healthy company. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't buy Google for a dollar, right? But what I'm buying is that dollar profit multiplied by a multiple, right? Which is 30 times earnings, right? It would take 30 years, right? Hopefully less to get my initial investment back in terms of just netting profits, right? And we don't invest in stocks in that way, but we, that's how you should think about when you're buying something that's a thousand dollar stock versus a $10 stock, right? In my mind, sometimes that ten dollar stock is more a lot more expensive than that thousand dollar stock. Right? If you look totally. at Berkshire yeah, Berkshire Hathaway is a four PE, meaning price to earnings. So their their stock price is two hundred dollars a share, right? And their earnings is about fifty dollars a share. And it's so fifty divided by or two hundred divided by fifty is four times earnings. Mm-hmm. And you're not paying such a premium for Berkshire. Simply because it's a slower moving but steady company that owns Geico and all that stuff. So, uh, Google, to answer your your first question, um, buying back. I used to be in a camp where I hated buybacks because that just represented a lack of imagination and spending on R and D and things like that. Hmm. But at the same time, Google has never paid a dividend. How, how old is the company? Thirty plus years old. So something like that. So it's a way to one reward the employees and keep them rewarded by not diluting their share of the company because mm-hmm. you're buying, you're giving out a million shares, but you're buying back a million shares on one end. You keep the float relatively in line. So anyone who's holding shares, most likely the biggest owners are the employees in, in this type of market that, that their shares are going to move up and down in coinciding with the buybacks and the employee payout. So when hmm. the employees pay out the the dilution effect, meaning there's more outstanding shares out there, that's watering down their ownership. And then the buyback waters up the ownership. I know mm-hmm. whatever water up is. Uh, <laughs> I'm with you. Brand new term. But that that in a way it's the opposite does, of watered down. That's what yeah. watered up is. Yeah, watered down. I'm with you. Watered up and watered down. Yeah. But uh the the headlines will say, hey, the board for this company authorize a buyback enriching the C-suite. Again, a lot of companies do do that. A lot of poor companies that have zero growth and actually a declining share price will announce a bear yeah. buyback. Yeah. Um, one, it's not across the board bad. It's not across the board good either. I, I don't want to be clear about that. Where in a nerdy answer, you are changing your capital structure, meaning 
if you have increased uh st- so capital structure is the the amount of debt the amount of equity mm-hmm. and the amount of preferred shares mm-hmm. right so the if you increase your amount of equity that that would actually and especially if it's funded by debt right that could change fundamentally what you are as a company in terms of the mathematical equation to give a yes or no to invest in that company i'm you i'm butchering it it's called the the um, weighted average cost of capital that mm-hmm. a lot of screeners use to say hey this this company has a hurdle rate of five percent if they could get me six percent they're an investable company but if they're changing their equity mix with their bond mix they're they're shifting things around apple fundamentally did this in 2011 when Carl Icahn came on the board and said, "Hey, Apple, you should do buybacks," mm-hmm. which was profitable to him, he sold. He sold as soon as they did. But again, they were. I think they were smart about it. They didn't increase debt. They did increase debt in much further down, but that actually helped them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if the thinking is they reduced their R and D, which they did a little bit, but it wasn't backbreaking. Apple's doing really well. Probably better as of as a result of smart buybacks. So essentially it put a floor on stock prices. Yes, there's benefits to the the concentrated owners of it. But in our world, a lot of our clients are heavy holders of these their company stock. Because that's how their rewards are coming out. Mm-hmm. So companies hold these shares on their balance sheet in the treasury. And then these shares are, let's say, redistributed to employees, executives, et cetera, in the form of restricted stock. If a company has no shares in their treasury, are they then issuing new shares in order to issue to their yeah, employees? Depends. It, it depends. Could be dilution. But yeah, it could. A lot of the cases there is dilution. Um, you think about a CEO who gets a million shares. That's the, the their treasury stock only has so much capacity. Right. But again, so then if you have the to company's new. yeah, if the company's growing, uh, it's a small percent. Like it's not in a case where uh, First Republic wanted to sell fifty percent of their no. their float, right? Stock declined. Yeah. 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 So that will that's a different portion of it. But yeah, I think stock buybacks does help bring the ownership pool back in line to where it was when these employees got their stock awards or prior to when they got their stock awards. So that makes sense to me. So the, if I'm buying $70 billion of stock and let's say that I issue, uh, I don't know what the number is, $7 billion a year to my employees is, is restricted stock. And of course, some of those people leave. So the unvested shares roll back into the treasury. Sure. But let's keep it simple. You know, I've, I've got 10 years at $7 billion a year sort of in my own treasury bank um, that I can effectively roll back out to employees. But the key is when I'm buying that 70 billion, I'm making it so that there are fewer shares available out in the open marketplace. Um, and therefore my, my stock becomes more valuable. So to me, stock buyback seems like a way to make the stock grow at a better clip than my earnings are growing, which is often in my mind, why this is used by companies that aren't growing as fast any longer. Again, there are business units in these big tech companies that are growing insanely fast, but if you just look at total top line revenue, um, you know it is hard to grow 400 billion of revenue at 50% a year. Like no one does that, right? 
So you start growing slow over time. So there's that. I suppose it could also be used for stock transactions. If Google goes and buys XYZ company for $10 billion yep. in stock or in cash, right? They could use their stock on the treasury to buy that company. So that could be another use for, or another reason for a stock buyback is it's just another form of cash that they can use for acquisitions. Yeah, and I, I think on the investor side, if you're holding that stock long term, you could choose when to liquidate your bought back shares, right? It's totally. versus a dividend where it's it's cash being distributed, which is tax, whether yeah. at qualified or income. Um, I think stock buybacks are another form of returning money to shareholders. Totally. And again, if, depending on your view of shareholders or employees, in our case, employees are very large shareholders, so. Um, they're they're one and the same. Yeah, they're not the largest shareholders of the company, not no. not even close. But but um, they benefit, yeah. Yeah, but they benefit exactly. Interesting. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> well, that's all the time we have for today. So thanks for everyone for tuning in. And as always, if you have any questions that you'd like us to answer on the next episode or on any episode, please drop us an email at team at com, and we will get to it here on the next episode. Thanks everyone for tuning right. in. Thanks.